This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, church. Uh, happy Mother's Day, first of all, to all the moms and grandmas and every other woman who's ever been a motherly figure in someone's life. Um, and speaking as someone who has a young daughter and has already felt the outpouring of affection from all of you in this church family, I can safely say that that encompasses every woman in this church family. Um, and so I pray that you all feel celebrated today on Mother's Day. Um, and on a day like today where we're talking about mothers, it's great to talk about our relationship with God. And so I'm blessed to be able to be here and to open the word of the Lord together in 1 Samuel, continuing our sermon series that we started last week. Um, we will be jumping forward into chapter 4. Um, while we would love to hit every chapter and every verse, it would take years upon years, and that would be a really long time. And so we're going to skip around a bit, and so shameless plug that there is a reading guide that we have somewhere floating around for if you want to be able to continue and read through every word of Scripture as we walk through this book together, um, you should grab one of those. But we're going to be jumping in chapters 4 and reading into chapter 5, but it's it's its own narrative section between 4, 5, and 6. It's all about God delivering his people from the Philistines, delivering them from their enemies, um, and how the power of God is so great and unmatched. But in the same, in the same piece, in the beginning of this section, we're just going to be looking in chapter 4 and really analyzing the relationship that God has with his people. So on a day like Mother's Day, we celebrate our relationship with our mom, um, but it's even more important that we talk about and look at our relationship with our Heavenly Father and ask ourselves, how do we relate to God? Like if God was a contact in your cell phone, what would it look like? I know for me, it became a little more prevalent this week that the way I put someone in my phone really displays the relationship and what it means to me. Um, my wife and I were going through and purging a lot of our phones as I broke another one and had to switch it up this week. And so we're trying to clear some data space and going through old contacts and just some of the names in there just, just crack you up. You don't even know who they are. Um, you've got the generic ones, the first and last name that have been in there forever that you're like, do I know them? Do I not know them? I've got ones in there that are like my wife is Morgan with a bride emoji, a heart emoji. She is the only person in my phone with an emoji because she is the most important. Um, we've got ones like mom and dad where it says the relationship, it doesn't say the name. Um, but then I know in my own phone, I've got ones that really show that there is no relationship present. Uh, I've got a contact in my phone Numerous ones titled things like Levytown 3-2 Apartment from when I was looking for a house or a place to live. I've got one Juan Carlo Mazda guy, which is pretty self-explanatory why I was talking to Juan Carlo. And then there was one that I've been thinking about this for a week, and his name is Will, and I still, to the, for the life of me, have no idea who Will is. He's a 614 area code, so it's in Columbus, I know that, but I guess if Will's watching the live stream, I'm sorry, but I just have no idea who he is. Um, but in the same way that we are able to look at a contact and see the relationship, God had given his people a way to relate to him. And then this, we're going to read about the Ark of the Covenant. And God had given the Ark of the Covenant as a place for him to dwell among an unholy people. It was a way for God to relate to his chosen people of Israel. And we're going to analyze this morning how different people related to the Ark and how it really displayed their heart's relationship with God. And we're going to see this morning that there's three different ways that you can view God. You can view him as a safety net. 
You could view him as a way for your own self-indulgence, or you can view him rightly as the one and only God of the universe, deserving of all the glory and the honor and the praise. And so, without further ado, I invite you to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word coming from 1 Samuel 4, 1 through 5, verse 4. I understand it's long, and I'm sorry, but we're going to go for it. Uh, word says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending to her said, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated finally. 
Sorry it's so long. But as we jump into this passage, we are going to look at these three relationships and these three different people that we're going to look at, the elders of Israel, Eli, and then rightfully the Philistines at the end. Um, and so we're going to first see that the elders of Israel are viewing God as a safety net. You see, they come into this story and they've just had a loss in a battle. They've lost 4,000 men to their enemy. Now, regardless of whether that's a literal or a figurative number, they've lost a lot. Like they've been defeated. And so they're looking back at this battle, and they rightly say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the, Israel, before the Philistines? And see, they show a great understanding of who God is. They know that he's sovereign. They know that he's in control. They know that he ordains all things, that no one can defeat God's people when God is with them. So ultimately, they know that God has allowed this defeat. But in the same way that they show such a great understanding and a head knowledge of who God is, their answer to this question reveals the disparity of their heart and their relationship with him. Because they don't even bother going to ask God to answer it. They could have sought his will. They could have sought what's going on. They could have gone and asked the priest to ask God, what are we doing wrong? But instead, they just choose to ignore the question, move forward, make their own desires, and go ahead and do what they want. We're going to take the ark of God and use his power for us. They didn't care about the relationship. They didn't care about being with God. They only wanted God for his power and his deliverance. They only wanted what he could give them. And I think maybe it's Mother's Day, um, but it reminded me of a time back in spring 2011 when I probably won Worst Son of the Year Award uh, with my mom. But I was moving to college. It was my first semester up at the University of Akron. Uh, my parents drove the two and a half hours to drop me off, moved me in my dorm room. We went to dinner. Then we said our tearful goodbyes, and I went on with my life. I did everything a college kid does, went to school, did some sports, hung out with friends, and never really talked to my mom. I didn't call her. I didn't text her. Didn't really give her the time of day. The, first, the only few instances, I think, in the first couple months that I talked to her was I needed money because I needed some extra textbooks. I needed something from home to bring her up to my dorm room, or I needed my meal plan changed because I needed more food. Those were the three reasons I talked to my mom. And then one day, I'm walking to class in the morning, and I realize I can't send a text. I can't make a phone call. My phone says I have no service. And so I come back to my dorm room, trying to figure out what's going on. I open my laptop and find an email from my father that has told me that he has cut off my phone bill. He said, I'm just no longer paying for my phone. Um, he said the reason was that basically my mom was the reason I had a phone. My dad didn't care about it. My mom wanted a way for her kids to be able to talk to her even when we were far away. That was the whole purpose my sister and I ever got cell phones, was to build that relationship. And so my dad basically went through and said that I'm clearly not caring about the relationship, so I clearly don't care about or need the phone. And so he cut it off. But in the same way that I was not caring about the relationship but just wanted what my mom had given me, that's all the elders of Israel are showing here by their response. We don't want to talk to God. We don't want to spend time at the ark, but we want to use it for the power that it is. They're saying we can defeat the Philistines on our own terms, and we'll just bring God as a weapon to do it. It worked for Moses against the Egyptians. It worked for Joshua at Jericho. It'll surely work again, right? But they come to find out that it, it doesn't work. It can't be yielded like that. Instead of losing 4,000, they lose 30,000. Hophni and Phinehas, the evil priests that have already been condemned by God to die on the same day, 
die in the battle, and the ark is lost. Just as my dad took my phone away, God takes away the ark of the covenant from his people. Basically saying, I gave this to you as a way to relate to you, but you don't care about my relationship, so you clearly don't need the ark. And so it's given into captivity. But is this how we see God? Is he only our safety net? Do we only spend time with him when we really need something? Think through of our prayer life. Does my prayer life only ramp up in times of struggle? If my marriage is failing, if my kids are becoming more defiant, if there's a family member on their deathbed at a hospital, are those the times that God drives me to my knees in prayer? Or do you come before God daily, enjoying his presence, enjoying the relationship that he so graciously gives us to relate to him, the almighty God of the universe? God doesn't want to be an in case of emergency contact in our phone. God wants to be our father and our provider. He wants to be with us in good times and hard times. He wants to walk through us as a steadfast and good shepherd that loves and cares for his sheep. But maybe you're thinking, this isn't me. I spend time with God all the time. I show up to church. I'm going and doing all these great religious things. Maybe you're feeling more like Eli because he looks pretty great in this passage, right? He looks pretty righteous. He's over here at the side of the road waiting and his heart trembles for the ark of God. Later you see he hears that his own sons have died and he cares less about that news than he does the ark of the covenant being taken. That's what kills him. And at first we're thinking, wow, this is such a zealous man before God, right? But then notice the narrator throws in a, an interesting piece in verse 18. He says that the reason that Eli died was because he was old and heavy. And it seems a little bit weird to think through, well, what, why would you put that in there? But if you've been reading along, you understand that this is a tie back to what God told Eli in chapter 2. Insert shameless plug for reading plan. But... God has already told Eli that he's going to lose the priesthood. He's already told him that Hophni and Phinehas are going to die on the same day. He's already told him that he's condemning Eli for how he's treated God. And if we read part of that message in 1 Samuel 2, verses 29 and 30, God sends the messenger and he says, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You see, God is condemning Eli because of his heart. He's picking at the motives of his heart. He's saying, I am your God, but I'm not your only God. I am your God, but I am not the God that you esteem higher than any other God. You'd rather give glory to yourself. You'd rather give glory to your sons than you would ever rather give glory to me. That's who Eli is. That's why he's trembling on the side of the road for the ark. You see, he's been judging Israel for 40 years. This man understands the law. He knows that the ark of the covenant was never to be taken into battle in this way. He knows it was wrong to do it, but he wasn't willing to stand up for God because who was carrying it? It was his sons. He cared more about his son's approval than he ever cared about being for God and his honor. God is calling out Eli more so because of where he put his weight, both literally and figuratively. You see, this, this word to honor that's talked about in 29 and 30 
Um, the literal meaning is to give weight to. And so the author's doing something here when he talks about this because the messenger says, literally, you give weight to your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And then God later says, for those who give weight to me, I will give weight to. Eli's condemned over the fact of where he put his weight and where he chose to put his weight was on his own waist. He was old and heavy. Eli didn't care about the relationship with God as much as he cared about what he could get out of it. His closeness to proximity to God and being in God's entourage was all about his own self-indulgence, what the relationship meant for him. His relationship with God was no better than my contact that says Juan Carlo Mazda guy. Like, Juan Carlo was nice, good dude. But the reality is, once I got everything out of that relationship, I don't go to lunch with him every week. I don't hang out with him. I don't talk to him frequently. I was only there for the car. And then the relationship ended. Similarly, Eli is only in this relationship because he can fatten himself and his sons. He's taking offerings meant for the Lord, and he's taking the best part. Best part goes to me. Best part goes to my kids. God gets the leftovers. This is really why Eli dies. It may look like he's all worried about the presence of the Lord and the Lord being glorified, but the reality is he knows that God is still there and in control. The minute he heard that his sons died on the same day, it should have clicked in his head that this is the prophecy being fulfilled. God is doing exactly what he said. God is doing exactly what he wants. He has ordained everything. God is still God. The only thing that's changed when the ark is gone is that Eli is no longer the priest. Eli no longer has the means by which to fatten himself and his kids, to live a life that insulates him from anything around him. His own glory is what's lost, and that's what killed him. But don't you see how we can fall into the same trap? Now, I understand and I really hope that none of you brought meat to be sacrificed this morning, and I really hope that that trend continues because it, I don't want to deal with it. Um, but the reality is we all bring something to God in, when we come here, right? We all come to give him our worship. But are we coming and giving God the best of us, or are we doing what Eli did and just giving him the leftovers? Like, think about your time this week with the Lord. Did you go and spend time in the Word, time in prayer during the best parts of your day, the times when you're most alert, the times when you're most excited and have the most energy and you're just happy to be in His presence fully? Or do we give Him the leftovers? Do we give Him the end of the day right before we go to bed when we're already physically drained, emotionally exhausted, and we're checked out? All we want to do is sleep, but we feel like we have to do something. We have to be that religious person. How about when we come to church, our, our very presence of being here, do we make it a priority in our lives? Or do we only come when it fits our schedule? We pencil God in in between our family vacations, our business trips, our, our kids' recitals and sports events. I'll show up a couple times a month because it's convenient for me, but I don't need to be there to worship God all the time, right? Or is it a priority? Do we make sure that we are in a congregation worshiping the Lord wherever we are, whenever we get a chance? Do we make sure that we are here for God or are we here for ourselves? Think about the last time that you, someone asked you when you left church, how was church today? How many times have you, like me, I've done this so many times in the past given the answer, well, I didn't get anything out of it. That ah, didn't really hit me very much. I didn't really care for that second song. 
I didn't really like the way the liturgy went today. Hear all those eyes, those me's. What is church about? Are we really here to give God glory? Or are we here to make ourselves feel good? See, God doesn't want your leftovers. He's not willing to be an afterthought, and he shouldn't have to be. See, God wants a relationship with us, but he also deserves and demands all of our glory and all of our praise. He demands to be Lord of all of our life and not just parts of it. What other God has spoken the world into being? What other God has angelic beings going before his throne night and day and singing his praises? What other God are we told in Scripture creation groans to sing his praises? How much more should we as his chosen people sing his praises? Because he chose to come and die for us. He chose to make us his people when none of us were worthy. We're not worthy of any indulgences. We're not more worthy than Eli. We're not more worthy than the elders of Israel. We're not more worthy than anyone else, but God chose us to give us the gracious gift to be called children of the Most High God. And that should be enough to drive us to give him all of our praise, to give him all of our worship. Anything less is lukewarm Christianity that we're told God will spit out of his mouth in Revelation. But if we view God as a safety net, if we view God as a means to get what we want, we can expect nothing more than the elders of Israel and Eli got. They're cut off from God's presence. Because the only way that God will be rightly viewed is as the one and only God of the universe, worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. That's why I love chapter 5, and we just had to throw it in at the end. Because the Philistines thought they conquered God. They throw his ark in their pagan god's temple as a trophy. But when they come back the next morning, what do they find? Their god, Dagon, has fallen face downward at the ark. Do you hear the irony in that? This pagan man-made god of the heathens and evil enemy of Israel is the only person in this whole story that has acted and reacted rightly before Yahweh, fallen face down in worship, something his own people weren't willing to do. But the Philistines quickly pick their god back up because he can't pick himself up, and they put him back in his place. But they come back early the next morning and find what? Not only is he face down, his head and his hands are cut off. He's been killed. He's been defeated. God has defeated the enemies of Israel. God has defeated this God because he will not share a temple. He will not share his praise. Not with a pagan God, not with an idol, not with you and not with me. God will not be second in our life. He will not share praise and he shouldn't have to. Like we said, he is God of all. We should be crying out to him because of what he's done. Don't miss the imagery, the foreshadowing given in the Dagon story. Psalm 78, they write about it, this exact moment. It says in verse 60, He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. God came and he gave himself up into the hands of the Philistines. He allowed them to take him so that he could awake, conquer them. And he goes on to march through chapters 5 and 6, destroying the Philistines by himself to come back in a triumphant march of praise that is literally just his ark being pulled by a cow. That's all he needed was himself. 
God is victorious. God has done such, excuse me, such great things for us. That's the power of God. And it's similar when you walk through the New Testament. We see again God come in the person of Jesus Christ. He gives himself up to Roman captivity, to death on a cross, thrown in a tomb. But when the women come early in the morning, they don't find him defeated. They find that God has defeated death. He's awoken and he rises and marches forward to defeat the enemies of sin and death for his people forever. Everlasting. In the same way that God did it here in the temple of Dagon, he did it in the person of Christ and he did it for us. And for that, he can't just be a contact in our phone that we only talk to on the weekend. He can't be someone that we only go to here and then, but he commands all of our being, all of our praise, all of our devotion. Jesus didn't die to be anybody's safety net. Jesus didn't die because you were worthy of your own indulgences. Jesus chose to die for you, and he chose to die for me. And we need to be looking to him as our good father. We need to be looking to him as the almighty God deserving of the praise that he commands this morning. When we come into this place, we need to be coming with hearts that are so full of gratitude, so full of praise and worship because of who he is. He is not a safety net. He is not a means for us to get anything out of him. He is merely the God of the universe that created us, sustains us, and is coming again to rescue us and bring us before his throne forever. One day, all will bow a knee and all will praise him. That's what he commands, that's what he deserves, and that's what we need to be coming this morning to give him the praise and the glory as we sing to the almighty God, deserving of all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise we could ever give him forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the beautiful sunshine and the trees and just the mountains and things that we can look to and see your mighty power, your majestic glory in all of creation. God, allow us to be a people that come before you understanding how you've chosen us, understanding how we deserved nothing, but we are able to come and sit at your feet as your children that we are able to be called that as a gift, that we are able to come before the Almighty God because you have allowed it, that we can know that we have a conqueror that cannot be defeated, not by the Philistines, not by Dagon, not by death, and not by the devil himself, but you have already defeated it all, and that when we are in your name, when we are in your body, your chosen family, God, we know that we are going to see it all come to be about your glory. God, allow us to purify our hearts and purify our minds and our motives this morning as we sing your praises. Let us bring you a shout of praise that is so much louder than anything the Israelites could have given in that camp. Lord, mold us to be a people that falls before you in worship always. In your holy name we pray, amen.